0: side.
1: this morning we're going to sing, we're just going to, just going to be overwhelmed by God's love and just the words of these songs that we sing this morning. I just pray that they just penetrate your heart, that you embrace every bit of truth that they have. And it's, it's so overwhelming how much God loves us and how much he gave up to send his son to earth, to be born to us, to humans. Um, and just to let him go so that we could be saved and rescued from sin and live with him.
0: I am unaware of these afflictions eclipsed by glory And I realize just how beautiful you are and how great your affections are for The grace in his eyes, and if grace is an ocean, we're all sinking. So heaven meets earth like an unforeseen kiss, and my heart turns violently inside of my chest. I don't have time to make these regrets when.
2: Father, right now, we just thank you for this day that we are allowed to come and freely worship you. And we just thank you for how much you love us and how great your affections are for us. We thank you for all the mighty and dynamic things you are doing in and for our church right now. And we just praise your holy name. In Jesus' name, amen.
3: Go ahead and have a seat. Good morning. I'm Jason Aubrey. I'm one of the overseers here at uh, Southfield. Um, We are moving into the Advent season, and Dennis has asked each one of the overseers for the next four weeks to come up with their family and uh, read an Advent reading. So um, this is my family. Dana is at the end. Uh, Jackson is right here. Kennedy is our youngest daughter. Uh, Kyla is... Um, out of town, so she can't be up here with us today, but um, we're going to start the reading with Kennedy.
2: We are reading from Isaiah 64, verses 1 through 9. Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down, so that the mountains would quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood, and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, so that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome deeds that we did not expect, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence.
4: From ages past, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who works for those who wait for him. You meet those who gladly do right, those who remember you and your ways, but you were angry and we sinned because you hid yourself, we transgressed. We all, we have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy cloth.
1: We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls on your name or attempts to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have delivered us into the hand of our iniquity. Yet, O Lord... You are our father. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Do not be exceedingly angry, O oh Lord, and do not remember iniquity forever. Now consider, we are all your people.
3: The Advent reading today is called Living Between Two Worlds. Restore us, O oh Lord. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Psalm 80, verse 3. <clears throat> As I write for Advent this year, we are waiting a babe we waiting for a baby, literally. Our daughter is in labor, and our whole family is in the hospital waiting room right outside labor and delivery. Even though we are tired because we have been up most of the night, we are awake, we are alert, we are ready. While we wait, we are bombarded with harsh news from the television that is on incessantly and the newspaper we brought from our home. We cannot escape the reality that thousands are dying from outbreak of disease and fear is running rampant. Racial tensions are high. Senseless shootings keep rocking our world until we are almost numb. The blessed arrival of this new addition to our family is happening at the very same time that the world we inhabit together seems to be falling apart. Why would God bring want to bring babies into a world like this? But no matter, when our son-in-law finally burst through the doors with the news of a healthy grandson, And a young mother who is tired but doing well, there is joyful pandemonium. Loud cheers and quiet tears mingle together in celebration of this child for whom we have waited so long. Both realities exist together, and somehow the fact that God chooses to bring new babies into the world let us know that he has not given up on us. Sounds a lot like Advent. While the gospel reading for this week is full of violent images and ominous predictions, the other scriptures describe an alternate reality that exists at the very same time. The psalmist cries out that God would restore us and express confidence that God will. Isaiah tenderly affirms that we are the clay and God is the potter, and that God is forming something good in us, even in the harshest of circumstances. Paul testifies that we are not lacking any spiritual gift as we wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, just like we wait for the revealing of a new person in our lives. And that is what Advent is all about. It is about living both realities at once, watching and waiting for Jesus to be revealed and to restore us in the midst of it all. We're going to have uh, communion right now. Uh, Let's go ahead and You guys can come on down. Um, As we take communion together, uh, you don't have to be a member of our church to take communion. Um, You just have to be a believer. Uh, Go ahead and take one of each and uh, pass it on. And um, go ahead and take communion when you are ready.
5: If you haven't already taken communion, please go ahead and do so now. What a great thing to be able to do, uh, right around the time of Thanksgiving is take a minute, stop and think and be thankful for the sacrifice that was given for us. Tremendous, just tremendous. Well, for those of you who don't know me, my name is John Beaker. I'm another one of the overseers here at the church. And, uh, a number of weeks ago, Dennis asked me if I'd be willing to come and talk on uh, Thanksgiving weekend, uh, and so I said, yes, definitely, absolutely. Excited about the opportunity to be here with you guys this morning and, uh, and uh, connect, talk a little bit about God's Word. Well, have you ever been to a place that you didn't want to be? Some place you just, you were there, you didn't want to be there. I've had this happen many times. Uh, unfortunately, more often than not, it seems like it happens at Wrigley Field. Uh, <laughs> Before you White Sox fans get on your bandwagon and uh, start waving your banner, uh, it's not because I don't want to go, it's because I'm just generally sad about the outcome. I'm excited when I go, and I'm a little bit less excited uh, when I leave. Last year, I went with a group of uh, co-workers to Wrigley Field to watch the Cubs get trounced by the Astros or whoever they were playing that day, and... uh, As we were there, I like to get to the game early. I like to be there early enough to watch batting practice, make sure that I get myself all situated before the game starts. So I drove by myself, and as I was getting there, I knew the time for the game was coming, and it was getting kind of close. I could hear the national anthem was going to be starting. So I needed to park. I needed to find a place quickly. So I saw a guy with a $20 uh, banner waving, and I thought, this is... Good, I don't have time to mess around. Let me just get in here and park. So uh, I followed him. He went down an alley and took off running like a quarter of a mile. He went a long way. And I'm just following him, assuming, all right, this must be the thing to do. I got there, and uh, he pulls into an apartment complex where I presumed I was supposed to park, parked there, got out of the car, went to the game, uh, watched them lose, Got out of the game, said our goodbyes with all the people from work, and immediately I noticed the crowd started to disperse. And it's amazing when you're downtown how quickly that happens, right? 30,000 people suddenly becomes 10,000, 1,500 every time you turn a block, right? So as I uh, come around that final bend, heading down that dark alley, uh, I realize I'm the only one going down this alley. This is probably not the smartest decision that I could have made. And as I'm walking, every sing- I, I noticed lining the streets were garbage cans. Every single one of them, a perfect place for anyone to hide to rip off an unsuspecting uh, guy who happened to park late at the game. Right? So if you ever want to really enhance your prayer life, I encourage you to try this. There was no falling asleep. There was no, oh, you know, God, uh, it, was, it was intense. And I'm walking towards the car, getting closer, getting closer, getting closer. I finally get in the car, heave a sigh of relief, and promise myself I would never do that again. I will make sure I leave earlier the next time. I didn't want to be in that alley, and I don't ever want to go back there. Maybe you've been in a place like that. Well, today we're going to talk about a person from the Bible who was in a place that he did not want to be. Someplace he did not want to go. So, I thought it would be a good idea to start off this morning with our question of the day. Have you ever, oh, wait, no, don't start yet. Have you ever been someplace that you did not want to be? So, we'll give you 45 seconds for this. Find somebody, if there's somebody that's sitting by themselves, make sure you pull them into your small group. Okay, 45 seconds. Someplace you did not want to be. All right, I have to admit, I'm very glad as I was listening, I I was trying to listen in to everybody's conversation. I was very pleased to hear that no one said here this morning. All right, so that's excellent, excellent. Good job for you guys. So a couple of months ago, I found myself making my way through the Old Testament in the Bible. Uh, I was trying to get a sense for what was going on in the minor prophets, those last 12 books in the end of the Old Testament. And I was, as I was going through, I was trying to identify one or two short verses that would capture the essence of what was being said. And as I was reading these books, I came across one of the books, one of the minor prophets in the Old Testament, that is so fantastic, so amazing, that it has managed to make its way into every children's curriculum, every children's storybook. If you have a, a, a small Bible, a book of Bible stories at home, I, I guarantee you this book or this story is in there. Uh, If I give you a couple hints, I'm sure even the smallest people in the room right now would probably be able to identify the person we're talking about. Uh, He was given a command by God. He was told to go somewhere. He decided to disobey, and he ran away and went on a ship somewhere. He ended up getting tossed off that ship and consumed by a large fish. Anybody under the age of 15. Have any idea who I'm talking about? Oh, I see hands back here. Anybody Anybody under the age of 10 that knows who I'm talking about? You're not under the age of 10. Who Who, who is it, Vincent? Who is it, Vincent? Jonah, right, exactly. Jonah, that's who we're going to be talking about this morning. Jonah is a, It's a very interesting story, uh, but I think that sometimes we get so enamored with the fantasticness of the story that we miss some of the things that happen, especially in the first chapter the story. Is so fantastic. We're just going to start off by reading, uh, reading it this morning, uh, or at least reading it in parts. We'll break it down piece by piece. So Jonah chapter one, verse one and two it says, the Lord gave this message to Jonah, son of Amittai, get up and go to the great city of Nineveh, announce my judgment against it because I have seen how wicked its people are. So what do we see right off the bat? Three things. One, God gave Jonah a message. Two, God charged Jonah with a task. And three, God judges what people do. It's true. God's message was for Jonah to go to Nineveh. God told Jonah, get up and go. Go. The task was to go there and proclaim something to the people of Nineveh. To give them a pronouncement of judgment. See, the people in Nineveh were behaving badly. The Bible says the people were wicked. And as such, God was going to bring judgment upon them. So what do we learn about God in these two verses? Well, we learn that he's the judge. What people do and how they choose to live does fall under God's jurisdiction. He's the one that gets to say, yes, this is right, or no, this is not right. He's the judge. Okay, so aside from the great fish that we all remember from Jonah, we see that God messages message delivered. God is the judge. So what does Jonah do? Jonah 1.3 says that Jonah got up and went in the opposite direction to get away from the Lord. He went down to the part of Joppa where he found a ship leaving for Tarshish. He bought a ticket and went on board, hoping to escape from the Lord by sailing to Tarshish. Now, the first word pretty much gives away the tone of this verse, but except if right the first words of genesis or of jonah one three are not uh, good for jonah in, in genesis six twenty two when we read the account of Noah, we see Noah did just as the Lord commanded in other parts of the Old Testament, uh, Aaron and Moses, uh, when they're trying to take the people of Israel and lead them uh, by god 's hand. Out of Egypt, we read that Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them. And they didn't get it all 100% right either. But if you're a Bible character and you have a story written about you, you don't want the word but right after your name. But he did something else. But he decided to go his own way. For that matter, if you're a human being, knowing that God is watching our stories unfold, you don't want the word but they went their own way after your name either. You want to hear, you want to see the phrase, and he or she did just as the Lord commanded. But in Jonah's case, he went a different direction. He went the opposite direction to get away from from the Lord. Now this is not a good sign for Jonah. Even at verse 3, we can see that things are going to take uh, an interesting turn. And as I was reading this verse, I could not help but think to myself how absurd this actually is, trying to get away from God. I guess Jonah had never read what David wrote in Psalm uh, 139, 7 to 12. It says, David writes, I can never escape from your spirit. I can never get away from your presence. If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I go down to the grave, you are there. If I ride the wings of the morning, if I dwell by the farthest oceans, even there your hand will guide me and your strength will support me. I could ask the darkness to hide me and the light around me to become night. But even in darkness, I cannot hide from you. To you, the night shines as bright as day. Darkness and light are the same to you. There is no hiding from God. Remember Tom Hanks' famous line from A League of Their Own? There's no crying in baseball. This is the same thing. There is no hiding from God. The idea that Jonah could actually pull this off is patently absurd. God is everywhere. Something else we learn about God in Jonah, in this book. As Jonah tries to get away from God, the further we read, we find it does not work. It does not work at all. can't get away from someone who's everywhere, who's omnipresent. Now, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that what God had commanded Jonah to do was distasteful to him. He didn't like it. He didn't want to do it. There's nothing in the passage to suggest that Jonah was confused or didn't understand what God was asking him to do. No, he just decided, nope, I'm not going to do that. Uh, And he threw a little tantrum, said, God, I know what you want me to do, but I'm going to go my own way instead. Do we ever do that? I think we do. I think the answer is yes, unfortunately. We're always going to face a temptation to do things our own way and to go our own way. But the next time we're tempted to do so, let's think about how things worked out for Jonah. Not really well, as we'll see as the story continues to unfold. So the question is, what is it that was so distasteful to Jonah about what God told him to do? Simple. Jonah hated the people of Nineveh. And before you're you're quick to jump on Jonah and and castigate him as, you know, how could he possibly think that or be that way, Uh, you have to understand something about the relationship between the Israelites and the people of Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. Okay, the Assyrian Empire did not have a friendly relationship with the Israelites. To put it mildly, Uh, they were on opposite sides. The Assyrians oppressed the Israelites and ultimately were responsible for deporting them from the promised land that God had given them uh, away. So, uh, they were not really good friends. So, the idea of Jonah or any other red-blooded Israelite going to Nineveh to give them any message of any kind was not something they would be inclined to do. So, Jonah's not alone in his disdain for the task that God has given him. But, but, God did not say, Well, Jonah, you would be nice if you would deliver this message that I have for you to the people of Nineveh. Jonah's not the local postman. God said, get up and go and deliver the message. And Jonah decided to go a different way. So let's keep going. Verse 4, what happens? But the Lord hurled a powerful and powerful wind over the sea, causing a violent storm that threatened to break the ship apart. Fearing for their lives, the desperate sailors shouted to their gods for help and threw the cargo overboard to lighten the ship. So what do we learn about God here? God is not impotent. Quite the opposite, in fact. Quite the opposite. He is, he is not impotent. He is omnipotent. God is able to accomplish his purposes in whatever form or fashion he chooses. Take it a step further. God gave a command. Jonah made a choice. God responded. This story starts to feel a little bit like a game of checkers at this point. One person, one moves, the other moves, the other does something else. Uh, but I assure you, it's not a game. You see, God was just not willing for Jonah to take the easy way out. God's purpose was clear, and it was going to be accomplished through Jonah, whether Jonah liked it or not. What about the sailors, though? What do we learn about them? We know they were scared. We know they were desperate. And we know that they did not know God. The Bible says that they shouted to their little G gods for help. They did not know the power of the Almighty God, Jonah's God. So, While Jonah is trying to run away from God and hide, quite literally, get lost. He is on a ship with a group of sailors who literally are lost. They have no idea who God is. That's interesting. I wonder if that matters. Let's tuck that question away and let's come back to it later. Let's go on to the next verse. Where's Jonah in all this? All this time Jonah was sound asleep down in the hold. So the captain went down after him. How can you sleep at a time like this? He shouted, get up and pray to your God. Maybe he will pay attention and spare our lives. Where was Jonah? Sleeping, sound asleep. And the captain, either in a fury or a raw panic, goes and finds to finds Jonah and says, get up and pray to your little G God. I mean, as far as the captain knew, One little g-god was as good as another little g-god. And since everyone was praying to their little g-gods, maybe Jonah's little g-god could actually do something. Probably not, the captain probably thought to himself. But everybody else is calling on their little g-gods, so Jonah probably should too. So, listen to what happens next. Then the crew cast lots to see which of them had offended the gods and caused the terrible storm. When they did this, the lots identified Jonah as the culprit. Why is this awful storm come down on us, they demanded. Who are you? What is your line of work? What country are you from? What is your nationality? What's going on here? Well, in order to figure out whose fault the storm is, the sailors decided to roll some dice. They cast lots in order to figure out who was to blame. And who should the lot fall to but Jonah? Now... Can we learn anything about God from this? Well, yeah, actually, I I think we can. You see, if it started snowing outside right now, uh, I highly doubt that anyone in this room would suggest that we go find the nearest game of Monopoly, pull out the dice, and start rolling them to figure out whose fault it is. That's absurd. No one would suggest that. But that's what happened here. That's what these guys did. But yet, when they cast these lots, surprise, surprise, who does it come up for? comes up for Jonah. What can we see about God from this? I think that God is not limited by the wisdom of men or the foolishness of men. Because even though their method of identifying who was at fault for the storm was arcane, God still revealed what he wanted to reveal. In the book of Numbers, God uses a talking donkey to communicate what he wants to communicate to a prophet called Balaam, Balaam. Uh, God is not limited in any sense. We can pick that up from Jonah chapter 1. Now, once the crew realized that Jonah was the culprit, then they started questioning him. Who are you? Where are you from? What did you do, Jonah? What did you do? And in perhaps the first good moment for Jonah in the story, Jonah says something that is absolutely true. Jonah answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. Finally, Jonah gets it right. He reveals some truth about God, further truth to us about God. Our God is the God of heaven. He's the maker not only of humans, but of the land, and most importantly at this point in the minds of these sailors, the sea as well. You can only imagine how the sailors are feeling when they, when they hear that Jonah worships big G God. Not little G God, big G God. All their gods that they've been praying to aren't gods at all. But Jonah, Jonah's God is the real deal. He is the God of heaven and earth and the sea. So the, the story goes on. The sailors, as you would expect were terrified when they heard this, for he had already told them that he was running away from the Lord. Oh, why did you do it? They groaned. And since the storm was getting worse all the time, they asked him, what should we do to stop, or what should we do to you to stop the storm? What to do, what to do. The storm is Jonah's fault. I mean, he is running away from God. What should the sailors do? Well, what would you do? Maybe... Talk to Jonah's God. Maybe ask Jonah to talk to his God, to try to find out what does Jonah's God want in this situation. Is there a sacrifice that needs to be offered here? What should happen? Well, none of those things are the solution that Jonah offers. Jonah's solution is this. Throw me into the sea, Jonah said, and it will become calm again. I know that this terrible storm is all my fault. Jonah's solution to the problem? Throw him into the sea. And in one sense, it seems noble. I mean, after all, why should the sailors die? They didn't do anything. Why should they perish? But on the other hand, it's also sort of a final act of defiance at the command of God. I mean, what did God tell Jonah to do? Get up and go. Deliver a message. Go to Nineveh. Proclaim his judgment. But Jonah's action here seems to be the last straw. I mean, how can he possibly go and deliver the message to Nineveh if he's dead? He can't. So, the game appears to be pretty much over. I mean, it would seem that God is going to have to find someone else to go to Nineveh. But the soldiers, or sorry, the sailors aren't so keen on Jonah's idea. What do they do? Well, instead, the sailors rode even harder to get to the land. But the stormy sea was too violent for them, and they just couldn't make it. Sailors don't want to kill Jonah. They, know, they at least have enough sense to know this, is not, this would be wrong. But on the other hand, it certainly seems like there is no other option here. They're not making headway. They are not going to make it. And so they do decide to ultimately take dra- really drastic action. Then they cried out to the, to the Lord, Jonah's God. Oh, Lord, they pleaded, don't make us die for this man's sin. And don't hold us responsible for his death. Oh, Lord, you have sent this storm upon him for your own good reasons. couple things to notice here. First, notice who the sailors are talking to now. Is it little G gods that they were talking to before? No. Is it the captain of the ship? No. It's Jonah's God. It's big G God. A first conversation is happening between the sailors and God. That's a big deal. And what do they say? Please don't blame us for Jonah's death. Jonah told us he's running away from you and that we should hurl him in the sea. Don't blame us. But don't miss what they say in the last part of this verse. They acknowledge the storm is from God. In other words, it came by his power. And that the storm, that God sent the storm for his own good reasons. In other words, it came for his purpose. There is a simple recognition that they don't understand all of the reasoning behind what is happening here. What a beautiful admission. What a great prayer. Have you ever been in that boat? Not knowing why you're in the middle of a storm in your life? Not a thunderstorm but a storm of difficult circumstances, hard times, or oppressive situations. One of the wisest things that we can do when we're in a spot like that is what these sailors did. Simply acknowledge God and acknowledge His sovereignty. He's in control of it all. Call out to God. Acknowledge His presence. Pray to Him. Let Him know that you need Him in no uncertain terms. Too often, when we're in storms, we're tempted to go it alone. Don't. Don't. Do what the sailors did. Acknowledge God. In the New Testament in the Bible, this story reminds me of a very, a story that's very similar from the New Testament, where there, were another, there was another group of men, Jesus' disciples, who were caught in a storm. What did they do in that instance? They went and found Jesus, who was sleeping in the back of the boat. Kind of like Jonah. And they woke him up, I'm sure violently, to get, to get the attention of the one that could do something about the storm. And Jesus did. He calmed it. Acknowledging God at any point in time is it's always a good idea, but it is, it is particularly a good idea in the middle of a storm. Why? Because we can't calm storms. We can only endure them. Storms force us into a posture of dependence in ways that nothing else can. We know that we're not in control, and so we are forced to look beyond ourselves for help. By their prayer, the sailors acknowledged God. So what happened next? Well, the sailors picked up Jonah and threw him into the raging sea, and the storm stopped at once. The sailors were awestruck by the Lord's great power, and they offered him a sacrifice and vowed to serve him. Well, they did it. Tossed Jonah overboard. He gone. In a game of checkers between God and Jonah, it looks like Jonah ended the game prematurely, doesn't it? There'll be no going to Nineveh now. I mean, he's, he's out of the picture. Let's hold on to that for a second before we look into, that, into the game of checkers that's going on here. Let's look at the sailors again for a second. What's going on with them? When they see the awesome power of God, don't miss what happens next. Read verse 16 again. The sailors were awestruck by the Lord's great power, and they offered him a sacrifice and vowed to serve him. What happened here? Yes, the ship was saved from physical destruction. Yes, the sailors were uh, saved from certain death. But something even more significant happened. The sailors were saved from spiritual death. The sailors offered God God a sacrifice and vowed to serve him. They encountered God, and we see a change in them, a life change. They aren't calling out to their little G-gods at this point. God's power was not wasted on them. They didn't just chalk up the end of the storm to random circumstance or a freak natural occurrence or even global warming. Quite the contrary. They didn't just think to themselves, storms come and go, and that was a big one. No, they acknowledged God. They gave a sacrifice to God and vowed to serve him. This event was a turning point in their lives, probably the turning point in many of their lives. It changed them. It was a defining moment. They had an encounter with the living God, and they were different because of it. So in the grand scheme of things, why did God choose to send Jonah to Nineveh? I mean, of all the prophets he could have sent, of all the people in Israel he could have sent, why Jonah? Was there no one else that he could have sent? Could it be that God chose to send Jonah because God cared about a boat full of sailors? A group of old sea dogs? Could it possibly be that God chose to send Jonah for the very reason that he knew Jonah would flee to Tarshish, get on board a a ship, of men who were hopelessly lost and in a terrible storm? Could it be that God knew how these sailors would respond to such a storm? Could it be that out of all the people in Israel that God could have sent, he knew that Jonah was the only one that would have the audacity to actually do this? Well, you see, Jonah thought He was playing a game of checkers. God moves. He moves. God moves again. God was playing chess in this game. The point of this game, if you want to call it, that was completely different than what Jonah thought. You see the sailors who are almost always completely forgotten in the story may well have been the point of the story in Jonah chapter one, because what happens is we typically read Jonah one verse 16 and we, we pass right on by it because Jonah one seventeen is so fantastic, so amazing, and displays God's power in such an incredible way, we forget what happened in the first 16 verses of the chapter. Verse 16 of Jonah chapter 1 shows us God cares deeply, cared deeply about a group of sailors. So because of that, we're not going to read Jonah one seventeen today. I encourage you to go home and read it. With, read, read it. Read it with your family. Read it with your kids. Read it with your friends. Read it for yourself because you'll see God's power in an amazing way. I will give you a hint that it does have something to do with a big fish. Well, what do, we, what do we see about God here? A couple things. We see that God's ways are way higher, way loftier than our ways. He sees the big picture. We see our part of the picture. Make no mistake about it. What Jonah did was wrong. He ran from God. What, it, what he did was a sin. And Jonah chapter 2 makes it very clear that uh, Jonah needed to do some repenting. That there needed to be a change there. And that did happen. But was, God's, was God stymied by what Jonah did? Or God, was God's purpose thwarted by Jonah's action wrong though it was? No, it was not. In fact, in Jonah chapter 3, we read this. The Lord spoke to Jonah a second time. Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh and deliver the message I've given you. This time, Jonah obeyed the Lord's command and went to Nineveh, a city so large that it took three days to see it all. What I find really amusing about this part of the story is that God not only won the game of chess, The sailors did uh, see his power and were changed by God's power. He also won the game of checkers (laughs) that Jonah was trying to play. Jonah did end up going to Nineveh despite his running away and doing precisely what God commanded him to do. In fact, you might say the second time around, Jonah did exactly what God commanded him to do. Pretty neat. Second thing is this. God deeply loves all people. You have to remember where the book of Jonah sits in the Bible, in the Old Testament toward the end. And typically when we think Old Testament, we think of God's interaction with the Israelites, his chosen people. Because so much of the, uh, of the Old Testament is centered around the way that God interacted with that nation. But God's plan was never exclusively for Israel. We see in the book of Jonah, God's concern for a nation of people that the Israelites were diametrically opposed to, the Assyrians. The last verse in the book of Jonah gives us some insight into God's heart. God's having a conversation with Jonah. and In the last verse of the book, God is speaking, and he says, But Nineveh Nineveh has more than 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness, not to mention all the animals. Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? God took pity on the people of Nineveh he cared he cares he loves and as i read that verse i can't help but be reminded of what god says and or what uh, what's written in psalm 145 ah that's not on my slide i'll read it to you it says the lord is merciful and compassionate slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love the lord is good to everyone he showers compassion on all his creation including the assyrians the sailors Jonah, you, me, and everybody we know. So there's a lot that we can can see about God from Jonah chapter 1. We learn that God does judge the actions of people. He's not asleep at the wheel. We learn that God is everywhere. He sees it all. There's no hiding from him. That's foolish. We learn that God is incredibly powerful. He can raise up storms and he can calm them by his own command. We learn that, there, that God is not limited in accomplishing his will, not even by a runaway prophet. learn that God's thoughts, his ways are far above ours. He sees the big picture. We see our part of it. And we learn that God is love. His compassion for people cannot be overstated. As for us, I think it's wise for us to acknowledge God in every circumstance, but particularly in a storm, because we want to be individuals and we want to be a church of which it is true, the church did just as God commanded her. That's who we want to be. Let's talk to him. Heavenly Father, thank you for the book of Jonah. Thank you for uh, this example uh, that you give us uh, of what to do and what not to do. Thank you for teaching us about yourself. We would be so clueless about you if you didn't reveal uh, who you were to us uh, through your word. We're so thankful for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey,
4: everybody. My name is Dennis. just wanted to come up here and let you know that I have a son who dresses incredibly well. And he is my favorite child that I've had. Every, the, other two, the other two are complete despondent. No. <laughs> Although all, all of what I just said is true, uh, I just want to let you guys know, uh, as, as John talked about, uh, I love the line, you know, he said, we, we can't calm storms, we, can, we can't calm storms, we can only endure them. We are about to try to endure a storm. Uh, as we are in the final few weeks, as you can see, of our push towards our new building, you're going to start to see some things change. Uh, Not only in terms of um, things moving around, but we're going to start, we might start losing some stuff. Uh, Our sound might be different. Our lighting might be different because guess what? Some of this is getting used at our building, and we want to make sure that by Christmas Eve, it's all there, set, and ready. So, over the next four weeks, if you walk in and it is completely pitch black and there is no sound, I want to encourage you there is still church. Uh, we will just have to do it a cappella, which I'm sure this wonderful band uh, is able to do. I'm sure it won't be that extreme. But I just want to let you know that we will uh, be doing – we will still be having church no matter what. Uh, And as I say all this, I've been warned from the back, thank you, uh, that our our, uh, servers are coming to receive the morning offering. And that's all I've got. So I'm going to hand it over uh, so you don't have to listen to me anymore. But just remember – my name is Dennis Papp. I dress incredibly well, and my son is awesome.
2: Oh, wow. And your daughter's awesome, too, but that's okay. Um, so a couple weeks ago, Dad talked about um, just, like, approaching worship in a different way and approaching prayer in a different way. And instead of, you know, just doing what we're trained to do, where if you're going to pray, you when you close your hands, you don't close your hands, you um, fold your hands and close your eyes and and bow your head, but instead you can open your hands and open your eyes and look up to God as you worship him through prayer. Um, And I just encourage you to take a similar approach into worshiping God through song today, through this song that we're going to be singing, our new one, Overwhelmed. Um, I always feel connected or the most connected to God through music, Um, but I'll say that I'm not one that I ever feel led to really, like, throw my hands in the air or throw them out or anything like that. But with this song, I can't help it. (laughs) I told you guys last week how I jam out a little bit on those rides from here to normal each week. And let's just say that I'm really glad I-55 is pretty straight because if i'm jamming out to this song i tend to close my eyes and maybe even drive with my knees a little bit with my arms out you know worshiping god which i wouldn't suggest it's very dangerous but i would suggest that um do you take a different approach to worshiping him today i dare you to just to feel god through this song i dare you to feel overwhelmed and delighted in the glory of his presence And I just, I dare you to feel captivated by his beauty, whether that be the beauty in nature or the beauty of bringing a group of sailors to him through a guy that disobeyed. And I dare you to display that in some way, whether it be, you know, throwing your hand in the air, throwing him out or something not so obvious, like maybe just holding your hands open down by your sides or glancing up at our big G God once in a while. So... Let's work move together. You can stand.
6: God, you are
2: Have a great week and just think about our big G God and how awesome he is.